Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the University of New Hampshire's College of Health and Human Services and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I'm a professor here at the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is Jeff Hughes, the Chief Strategy Officer for Wentworth Douglas Hospital in Dover, New Hampshire. In this podcast, Jeff talks about his career in planning and strategy in a wide variety of healthcare organizations, from community hospitals to teaching hospitals to healthcare systems and even a medical school. Wentworth Douglas has recently gone through the process of becoming an affiliate of Massachusetts General Hospital, and Jeff talks about the lengthy process Wentworth Douglas went through to decide on this strategy. This podcast is a fascinating insight into the reasoning behind the industry-wide trend in consolidation. Thanks for listening, and here is Jeff Hughes. Well, welcome to The Forge, Jeff. Thanks, Mark. Glad to be here. You went to Boston University where you majored in biology. What was it that drew you to BU, and, and why biology? So Boston University was exciting for me. I grew up in um, in central Connecticut, and um, Boston to me was an exciting place to go to college because of the many college students that were there. I had friends that were there. And also, initially, coming out of high school, I thought I was headed towards a career in medicine. And uh, so hence, I was a biology major. So coming out of BU with a biology major, um, I applied to medical school and was waitlisted okay. and uh, ultimately didn't get in. And so I knew that I would reapply but wanted to get some experience. And so to supplement my experience, I actually took a job in medical research. Um, and uh, so I worked at the Yale School of Medicine and the Department of Physiology as a lab assistant and did that for two years while I tried to sort of decide sort of which direction I wanted to go in a career. Do I reapply to medical school? Do I look for a PhD in science? Um, do I do something else? And so um, my exposure to Yale and physiology and being in the medical school got me an opportunity to look at sort of what the medical students were doing in medical school and also had the opportunity to get to know some of the faculty and students that were in the School of Public Health. And after being in the lab, I decided that I didn't want to do a PhD in, in a science. So no. I knew that. So that was ruled out. and. I had actually sort of grown up in hospitals. My mother was a nursing administrator. She was a chief nursing officer at the hospital before she retired back in 82. And as a kid, I used to walk up the hill and actually have lunch with her in the hospital. And so, and then I also worked in high school. Uh, my first job was actually as a TV repairman in the hospital in our local town. And uh, then I was an orderly in college throughout that. So the idea of hospital administration sort of intrigued me. So I began to look at what a, um, an either an MBA in healthcare or a master's in public health might be. The program at Yale that intrigued me was a cross-divisional program. So my interest sort of shifted. Instead of looking at medicine where I'm uh, um, dealing with one patient, although I still had a strong interest in that, my focus really widened to talk about what might be the impact applied to a, a broader segment of the population, so really along the lines of health policy. So the program that they had at Yale at the time was cross-divisional between epidemiology and health services administration. Um, my thought was that it would marry my background in science with also my desire to have a broader, greater impact on healthcare. And so, um, so I looked at Yale, I looked at Columbia, I looked at Hopkins. 
and um, I thought all similar programs, all similar, all a little bit different. It was it was just just a sort of a sigh. What was interesting was I interviewed at Hopkins, and at Hopkins I had put down um, an interest in epidemiology, and I went down actually and met with the chair of epidemiology and. At that point, I, in that interview, I had an interest in infectious disease epidemiology, and the professor there said, oh, that's really, you know, there's not much of a, a call for that in the United States these days. Okay. It's really foreign, and I just, you know, looking back, you know, after herpes broke and then AIDS, AIDS broke, bro- right. you know, how that field really opened up, so I just thought it was an interesting anecdote. But at any rate, um, it was the Yale program and the cross-divisional nature of it that it piqued my interest, and I'd also gotten to know some of the faculty members there and some of the students, so to me it was natural. So. Um, so I applied to the school that, unlike medical school, was accepted everywhere that I applied, coming with recommendations coming out of the Yale Physiology Department, and um, decided to matriculate at Yale. Okay. So that's how I got into that field. Right. So you always had kind of a high-level interest. It wasn't just administration. It, wa- it was also this kind of blend of policy, so you, which fits naturally into where you are today, looking at kind of the bigger picture strategy kind of work. Yeah, I would agree. I also think, too, that going to Yale provides somewhat of, a, of an advantage that way. Because part of Yale, the way they view themselves as trying to establish leaders um, in the field. And so that really helped to broaden my um, horizon and open my eyes a little bit to what might be possibilities as opposed to limitations. So you you graduated from Yale and did a a residency. at Newport Hospital in Rhode Island. Was that part of the program? Had you actually graduated or was the was the residency like a third year uh, requirement? So at that time, uh, Yale had a, um, a dedicated hospital administration program. I had, uh, um, I came into the joint divisional EPI and health services administration. The hospital administration track was very structured and I did explore trying to transfer into that track, but because of how structured it was, it was not possible to transfer into that track. So at that time, the hospital administration track at Yale was a year and a half uh, didactic and then a year and a half in a work experience. So my path was a little bit different in that um, I finished the two years at Yale, got my degree, and then I decided that I wanted to get a hospital administrator residency. And so began to look on my own. And through a faculty contact at Yale, I met the CEO of Newport Hospital and um, who they hadn't had a resident before. And um, so I met with him, had a um, interesting conversation with him. He asked me to talk about how I might be able to help the organization. So I did some research and uh, talked about my perspective in terms of where I thought the hospital sat strategically, what the opportunities might be, what the challenges were, and uh, sent it to him. And uh, he liked it, and so he took me on as their first administrative resident. Oh, wow. Okay. So even at that, like the very beginning of your career, you were already kind of pointing towards a strategic planning kind of yeah, it, yeah, it was interesting because I didn't know what to expect. There were a couple things that I knew I wanted to do in the residency. So one of them was to coordinate the joint commission survey. Um, okay. There was one coming up, and and the um, one of the faculty members at Yale, uh, John Thompson, who actually was the father of DRGs, uh, said that um, in one of the classes I had with him was that if you want to learn the organization, coordinate the Joint Commission Survey. So there was one coming up at the hospital, and I asked if I could coordinate it. So wow. I did. So I got to have that experience. The other part was that when I went to Newport, this was now in the early 1980s, it was when 
hospitals were uh, reorganizing to form a corporate structure. So although Newport Hospital is a small community hospital, they had just restructured to have a parent corporation, then a, the hospital was a subsidiary, and they had a real estate subsidiary as well. And so they, were, they had established then two boards of trustees, one over the parent and one over the hospital. And they had also established two planning committees. So I came in as a resident and the CEO asked me to serve as staff to both boards and both planning committees. And so that's how I began my career in hospital planning and strategy. Wow. All right. So, and you finished the residency and, and they hired you full time. That's correct. To continue in that role that you were yeah, describing? Yeah, I was a planning coordinator. It was my first position. Okay. Did that kind of solidify your, your interest in the in the field at that point and said, this is in fact, I've made the right decision, this is where I want to be? There were certain aspects of planning that I really liked. One of them was that it, by its nature, makes you stay current with what's happening in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And also, because of its nature, keeps you tied to the executive suite. Mm -hmm in terms of strategy and the direction of the organization. So so I did enjoy that aspect of it as opposed to operations, which tend to be more focused um, in terms of a specific area. So that was uh, was part of it. The opportunity to move came up when um, uh, I moved to Danbury Hospital as a director of planning. Um, my thought there was that it was going from a hospital, Newport Hospital was uh, roughly 100 beds, and I went to Danbury, that was about 300 beds. So it was, okay. a, I, and it was a teaching hospital. So mm -hmm. it was an opportunity to grow a profession and and you stayed there for a number of years, and eventually you were promoted to director of operations with a, what sounds like a much expanded portfolio, including a staff of over 60. So at that point, did you, in that role, did you wind up, you did wind up picking up an operational aspect as well as planning. What was that like, kind of expanding and and and? And taking on those additional roles, it was a growth opportunity that was yeah. offered to me, and I took it. It was um, it was interesting going into operations um, and dealing not only with moving the organization forward in terms of of working with the directors under me to move forward, but also um, dealing with the inherent uh, personality issues of managing people, the challenges as well as the rewards. And so it was something that um, that I enjoyed, but I think my heart was still in uh, strategy and planning. Okay. And with the, the size uh, staff that, that you were overseeing, you must have been a manager, so a supervisor of supervisors. You had moved up That's to. correct. So what was that like moving from, you know, from individual kind of performer to supervisor to, to manager in a fairly short period of time? Yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a challenge. Um, I think if you're in an organization, you get promoted from an individual contributor to a, a supervisor. It can be somewhat challenging, especially when you have people that are, that have been there and seasoned in the, in the organization, have been there for a while. So, um, in that role, I oversaw, um, utilization review, medical records, and quality. And so I had that underneath me. Yeah. Um, and it was at a time of change. We oversaw the, the implementation of the National Practitioner's Database, which is a way to kind of track physicians that have malpractice cases to share that across the, the country to try to um, identify problem physicians. So implementing that, getting that changed through the medical staff. Um, also got involved in risk management and insurance renewal. So became 
very much familiar with the malpractice realm. And then also, um, it was at a time too where continuous process improvement was now being beginning to be applied um, to hospitals in terms of looking at the work of Deming. And so it uh, was a, a time of tremendous change, um, but opportunity for the organization. Yeah. So it sounds like you were retaining your very high level kind of uh, strategic view, but then you're also getting deeply into the weeds of, of the day-to-day functioning of the organization. At the same yeah, time. exactly. How did those two kind of mesh together in terms of your kind of growth as a as a leader? I think it was a good fit because I was able to provide some context for uh, my direct reports and the staff mm-hmm. about where the organization was going, how they fit in, and what the opportunities were. Yeah. You stayed with Danbury Hospital for about five years and then went to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is a, an international accounting and consulting firm, which is a kind of a big jump. You, you left kind of direct care and the, you know, being on the front lines to a, a consulting role. What was, what, what drove you to make that? What was the opportunity you saw? And then kind of what did you learn in that time? So it was interesting. Um, Let me go back to my time at Yale. It was back in the early 80s. And actually, um, a lot of the firms that were coming in to interview uh, students that were graduating from Yale were large consulting firms. It was a time when I I look at it as a time of major growth in the whole uh, arena of management consultants in healthcare. And so there were several large organizations, Coopers and Librand, uh, Pricewaterhouse, Arthur Anderson, ENY, that were recruiting students out of Yale. My perspective was I had an interest in consulting, but my perspective was that I wanted to get some practical experience in hospital administration before doing it. So consulting was always in the back of my mind as being an opportunity. And when I was at Newport Hospital during my residency, um, we had um, our auditors were Coopers and Librand, and we brought in their consulting team. And I can't remember now what the what the um, project was, but at one point, uh, one of the partners approached me about joining the firm, and I said, "Well, I just started my residency. I said I want to get beyond that. I said maybe it's something I'll look at down the road." And then um, when I was at Danbury for five years, an opportunity came up to join uh, Coopers and Librand and actually was in their Hartford office. So it meant not a relocation, but I could actually commute to the, to the, um, uh, to the practice. And so I, um, I made the leap to uh, join consulting. So it started out as Coopers and Librand, which mm-hmm. then merged with Price Waterhouse right. uh, during my 11 years with the organization. And um, my interest in doing it was to really strengthen my quantitative skills and to, again, keep more abreast of um, what was happening across the industry and how it was being applied to the local marketplace okay. and to, um, to clients. So it was a natural fit for me. Um, enjoyed it. It was uh, an easy transition. What was interesting to me was I was contrasting sort of my experience and those of others in the organization. So a peer of mine, about the same age, graduated at the same time I did, uh, went right into consulting out of graduate school, where I had gone into hospitals and then into consulting. And so it was interesting that we had different strengths and weaknesses. And um, she had um, she had a little bit more quantitative strengths coming in and more financial strengths than what I did. But um, I came in with a practical experience of what it was like to actually run a hospital and how to maneuver that and how things work. And so the two of us actually uh, melded very well in terms of our skill set and uh, and worked very well together. And we're still actually close friends today. Yeah. So it's nice. So did do you feel like your work in the field added to your credibility as, uh, when you were selling your skills? To clients or yeah, it, knowledge? No, no, it did. It was um, 
the reason that they were hiring at that time was because the woman that I just spoke with was a colleague had just been recruited from another office in the firm to come in because the Hartford office, which was just building a healthcare practice, had sold a uh, a project for a master facilities plan for a hospital. And I had just completed one at, at Danbury Hospital. And so I came in with that skill set. And as well as I had, I had built a um, bed uh, demand projection model, which then we ended up applying to the to the uh, client's needs at the for, at the firm. So the timing just it clicked. It seemed to be the right place to go. Neat. What kind of so for folks who are not familiar with con- consulting, the, the the work that consultants do in healthcare, in particular, maybe in that time frame, what kind of projects were were organizations calling on on uh, the consulting firm you were working with to help with. So you said, uh, so master facilities plan, plan was one, uh, sort of the, the bread and butter for the firm at that in those years. And healthcare consulting was really certificate of need applications. Yeah. So helping hospital clients, um, apply for placement of, um, of an imaging equipment, uh, linear accelerator, major building projects. So we would come in as a staff and we'd actually coordinate and develop the certificate of need application and then shepherd it through the regulatory approval process. Process of the state. Why would a why would a hospital need? Why would a hospital not just do that themselves? Why would why would they need the help of, of a consultant? To do that? I look at a consultant for for a hospital having three particular reasons. So, one is that the um, they bring in manpower. So they bring in the team that can actually get something done, where the organization is preoccupied with just daily operations. Two, the consultant can bring in some expertise, some industry knowledge uh, beyond what the organization might have. So they're added value that way. And then the third is more political, that um, sometimes the organization sort of knows where they need to go, but there are some political issues, either trying to get the organization aligned, either the medical staff or even staff internally, there's a difference of opinion. So the consultant comes in as an objective third party, does an assessment, and then during the presentation of the results, takes the arrows, uh, the political arrows in the organization to then move the organization where it needs to go. So in my mind, those are the three reasons that an organization would bring in an outside consultant. Okay. So you spent 11 years with, with what has become PwC and then left to go to uh, Saint Rafael, Hospital of St. Raphael in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. What, what made you decide to return to direct care after, after your stint in consulting? Um, there were a couple things. As I advanced in, um, in consulting at, uh, at PwC, I was traveling a lot more and, uh, and had kids at home. And so the, the travel requirements um, and the long hours in consulting seemed to, to play havoc. Um, when the opportunity at St. Race came up, to me, since I had gone to Yale, and St. Rafe's is located in New Haven, it was an opportunity for me to go back home. And I had such fond memories of my time <clears throat> working at uh, Yale Medical School and then going to the School of Public Health that, to me, it was going home. And St. Rafe's was a mission-driven community hospital, uh, but a large teaching hospital, so it was that opportunity. Yeah. So it was my way to kind of leverage back into healthcare, which is where I thought I would end my career anyways and okay. being on the provider side. Okay. So it seemed to fit and, uh, again, not requiring a relocation, so providing stability for the family, um, close to home, easy commute, no more travel. 
people or pressure to sell. So it was it was good. Yeah. So kind of fa- doing a fast forward over the next several years, you did some stints. You 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 left Saint Raphael, did stints with uh, Partners Healthcare System at the corporate level. Uh, then you went to Caritas. Uh, Holy Family Hospital. And after these experiences, you actually formed your own consulting firm uh, for a period of time where you did both consulting and interim work. What made you decide to strike out on your own in particular, for, you know, coming back so to consulting? It was an interesting transition. So so I was content to, um, to stay at St. Rafe's uh, for retirement. That's what I had planned to okay. do. But circumstances change. And so my wife and I, we had actually had met at Newport Hospital, and I chide her that I created her job for her because when I was a resident, I uh, redesigned the quality program for the hospital and for the first time married the quality assurance process of the medical staff to the quality control process at that time of the hospital into one overall quality process overseen by a board. And we created the position of, um, uh, I think, quality coordinator, which then she was slotted into. And then she and I got to know each other through the joint committee became friends and um, so she um, uh, so she followed me from when I moved to Danbury she followed me a couple years later and then we ended up getting married and um, so um, at the time I finished at St. Rayfields after five years she was recruited for a position in New Hampshire and so so trying to be the supportive husband, I said, well, you followed me. And so I said, sure, honey, if you want to um, apply for this job, you certainly have my support. Not thinking that we would ever do that. Because <laughs> we were going to die and, and, or, or finish your well, career. Well, <laughs> we were also very well connected in our uh-huh. community. I, have, I was serving as a selectman for 11 years in the town oh, wow. and, and was very active, involved with the Boy Scouts and a bunch of other organizations. So I was probably content staying where yeah. I was. Yeah. But at any rate, um, I made good on my promise. And so so she was recruited for a wonderful position from which she eventually retired at Exeter Hospital in uh, New Hampshire. And so um, so we relocated. And it was a bit of a transition for me, trying to get settled and to find the right position. It was, And it was compounded by the recession that hit back in 2008, 2009. So um, I initially came up and... Um, the transition was a little bit rocky. Our kids were now in college, so that wasn't that was long, no longer an issue to remain in Connecticut. And um, so the first year, she commuted from uh, New Hampshire to Connecticut, was up here during the week and then back home on the weekends. The second year, we had sold the house. And so I ended up commuting from from New Hampshire to Connecticut. St. Rafe's was very generous to me, allowed me to try to work from home one or two days a week, and then I was on site the rest of the time until I could find something. And I took a job with Partners Healthcare System in their business planning office. And I had done some consulting for partners um, when I was at PwC. So I knew the organization and they knew me. It was a good fit. Really enjoyed what I was doing, enjoyed the people. Um, I was somewhat familiar with MGH and partners because of the consulting work I had done. The challenge for me was the daily commute to Boston from New Hampshire. So, so after about a year and a half, I said if I could find something closer to home and also something that would be at a more of an executive level, looking for a VP of planning, I would take it. And so an opportunity did come up at Holy Family Hospital in Methuen, and it was part of Caritas Christi uh, Healthcare System. I was there for a little over a year, and in that year, there was a lot of transition at the organization. Uh, the first was that it was sold to become steward, so it changed from a not-for-profit uh, community organization, charitable uh, mission, um, a religious connection as well, 
to a for-profit driven organization. And the I thought fairly secure in that in that position because I was the strategy was on growth, which is what they had to do. They had planned to put a VP of planning in each of the six hospitals. I was the last VP to be placed um, in the in the system, and I was at, at Holy Family. Had a great rapport with the CEO of the hospital, Tom Sager. I'd actually met him 30 years earlier, and um, through uh, an organization called the New England Healthcare Assembly, and he and I hit it off very well. And it was just really funny because I had a I had my annual review with him, and A plus marks across the board. Um, he said, you're my most effective member of the team. Glad to work with you. Looking for things to go forward. I said, that sounds great, Tom. And then a month or two later, he called me in his office and he's talking to me and he says, he says, well, I have to let you go. And I thought he was kidding. Um, and I said, I said, what do you mean, Tom? And then he kind of became very pale and said, no, he says that because of the, of the crash that had happened in the stock market, the organization had lost 65 million in the stock market. The organization was going through major retrenchment. They had a new CEO, a new corporate team, and they were taking the, they were cutting 165 positions across the system. And they were taking arbitrarily, arbitrary decisions about who would go. And it was uh, last in, first out. Oh, okay. So, so he was so he was bothered by it. Uh, our board was upset by it, but there was little that they could do to change the situation. So he negotiated a good settlement for me, good outplacement service, and I was like, okay, what do I do now? Because we had just moved to New Hampshire and did not want to relocate, and so I began to then search for what could I do. So I did a couple things. So. I initially did some consulting on my own. I had a fairly strong professional network, which I still do, which I think has been a strength that I have had throughout my career about having a cadre of professional colleagues that I can call on for questions, for issues. They can call on me. And I still think that that's very important as you, as I would advise anyone young and upcoming to build a strong professional network. I have found that network to be tremendously helpful in terms of bouncing ideas off of new approaches, connecting me with other people that may have ideas. And so that's been very helpful. And then when I was on my own through that network, um, I was able to actually get quite a bit of, of consulting. And so I, I did that for a while. And as it, as it was growing on over a year of uh, not having a permanent position, but not wanting to have the pressure of being on my own as an independent consultant, I decided to supplement that by doing some interim work. So I connected with an organization called Leaders for Today, which is connected with Philips de Pisa, which is an executive search firm with specializing in healthcare. And so with them, I... I jumped back into operations. I thought it would be an opportunity for me to build upon my operations experience at Danbury and to supplement my background to uh, position me to find that permanent position. So I um, jumped in sort of sight unseen to be the VP of operations at Joslin Clinic in Boston. Mm -hmm. And that was an interim role and it was pure operations. It was running a diabetes clinic with multiple providers. And it was um, it was a very interesting experience. I really enjoyed it and stayed on there for, it was supposed to be six months. I think I grew to like nine and until uh, they hired a permanent. Was not interested in staying out at the organization because, again, the daily commute to Boston could be too much. You can tolerate it for a certain amount right. of time, but not uh, permanently. And 
And then from there, when that uh, that ended, uh, Leaders for Today slotted me into a director of operations in the Seacoast Cancer Center. They were um, at a point where they were building a brand new cancer center. And so I thought that would be an interesting time to join the organization. So I worked with the VP and the administrative staff to help them open a cancer center. And then while I was there, still looking for a permanent assignment closer to home, so I wouldn't be living out of a suitcase, which is what I was doing in this interim world, now based in, in southeastern Massachusetts, the opportunity came up with the University of New England in Biddeford. And I thought a lot about it, about do I want to make that change into academics, but it was, I was a chief administrative officer for the medical school, and to me it was it was very intriguing and very attractive to work um, in the medical school and really enjoyed working with the dean and, and working with him. What his, his vision was to see if they could actually double the size of the medical school. So it was a fun time to be in the organization. That sounds like a place to your strengths of growth and planning growth. Yeah, it really was. And, and it was nice for me to be back in an academic environment. I really enjoyed that, you know, something that I had worked in for two years you know, after college and then also um, in graduate school. So it was it was an exciting time. And then things happen. And I was uh, leaders for today was owned by, as I said, by Phillips to Pisa, a recruiting firm. They approached me and said, there's this position open at um, at uh, Wentworth Douglas Hospital in Dover, New Hampshire. Would I be interested? And I said, no, I said, I'm, I'm really? fine. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm fine where I am. Uh-huh. I, you know, as this has been, you know, a two year transition. It's been interesting, but, um, you know, I'd like to stay where, where I am. And, um, and they came back at me and said, well, you know, why don't you, why don't you sit down and meet with Greg? I've heard good things. You know, I went home, talked to my wife. My wife worked at Exeter Hospital and, uh, which is uh, just down the road from Wentworth. And she said, well, I hear good things about it. And I also actually spoke to the CEO of Exeter Hospital and asked him his advice on it. And he said, he said, why don't you go meet with Greg? He's a pretty good guy. And so I said, well, I've got nothing to lose for conversation. So one morning I stopped at the hospital and had a conversation with Greg and, um, we hit it off and it hit off really well and I made the decision to move and it was the best decision I ever made in my life was to come to Wentworth Douglas. Um, it's been a wonderful experience. So that was 2012. And and I'm, maybe I missed it. Was this a was this a placement, a permanent, an, an attempt by the staffing firm to put you as a permanent placement? No, or was it a temporary role? No, this was a permanent position. Okay. Yep, they were recruiting for a permanent position. Okay. So, um, so you came here in a permanent role. Permanent role, okay. and uh, as the VP of planning, and it was at a time where the ACA had just been passed by Congress, okay. and the, the my predecessor was retiring. He had been here for about 10 years and was a solid planner. And so the Greg asked me two things uh, coming into the organization. One was that um, they um, had a strategic plan that was really focused on the hospital in the past, and it wasn't really strategic. It was more operational. So he wanted me to change it to more of a strategic plan, particularly in light of what was happening with the ACA and how healthcare was changing. And then the other was that the that in the past prior 10 years, the Wentworth Health Partners, which is the organization that employs all the physicians, was growing tremendously. And so, and the foundation also had started a few years earlier, that was growing. And that's the foundation being the organization that raises charitable donations to the organization. And so he said, can we come up with a strategic plan that would cut across the entire organization and not just the hospital? So... So I came in and said, I'd be happy to do that. And I came in with a fresh approach. I said, well, why don't I use this opportunity to not only redesign the uh, uh, the strap planning process, but also 
as a way for me to get familiar with the organization. So I did what I called a strategic assessment, which we've now adopted every year, where we try to collect as much quantitative information as we possibly can. And we do that in preparation for the strap planning session. So we look at you know, I wanted to know sort of what was our volume, um, where are we growing, where are we um, losing volume or maintaining volume, what is our financial performance, um, how does that compare to others in the marketplace, um, both locally, uh, statewide, and um, and nationally, if we can get it, quality performance, what's been our track record, what's been our track record in patient satisfaction, and then we looked at, we spent a lot of time looking online about sort of and talking to colleagues and reading about sort of what were the trends in healthcare with the um, ACA, the Affordable Care Act being passed, what was out there in terms of how they thought the impact would be on hospitals and healthcare providers. And we then pulled that together and actually sent that out as a pre-read to um, a team of the executives that we and medical leaders. And, and then we structured the meetings, um, which we've now done every year since, to have that as background, we do a brief overview of that, um, and then we structure the meetings to have discussion about issues. Yeah. And the way that we approach it here at Wentworth Douglas is that we come up with what we call key strategic questions. What are those key strategic high-level questions that we want to answer through the process? So you have this quantitative baseline, quantitative that baseline. everybody's familiar yep. with. That you're, and is that how is that different than what was happening here before, maybe in other organizations? Is that not something that's done everywhere? To me, it's basic strategic planning, but I don't think that that was happening here at Wentworth prior to that. They had what they call the Plan for Excellence, which was 25 initiatives, and they were, as I looked at it, they were loosely aligned with the the underpinnings of their mission pyramids, those are the values of the organization, people, technology, finance, um, and something else. But it, but I was the only person that recognized how it was tied into the overall mission and vision of the organization. Nobody else from the executive team had that connection um, okay. anymore. And the CEO's perspective was there were 25 things that were really not strategic and were not moving the organization forward enough. It sounds like a balanced scorecard kind of. It, it was. It was. They would, And the strength of the organization, though, was on execution. You know, Greg and I often chat about the fact that you can have the best plan in the, in the world on your, but if it's just on the shelf, it's of no value. And so I wanted to take the strengths of their planning process, which really was an execution. And the way that it worked was on a quarterly basis, there were actually reports that went to the executive team and then to the board planning committee to actually track the progress. And so we've built an, on that basis and strengthened that to have that kind of accountability. So you, you started adding these strategic questions, you were saying. So what? how did that layer on top of your kind of background baseline um, uh, data collection so it was it was actually good and one of the one of the most enjoyable parts of strap planning for me is that we also pose to the group um, uh, what I call wild cards. So we do some what ifs. And in the early days of the ACA, the what ifs were, were crazy. So we were wrestling with, well, what if the, um, what if the ACA at that point, it was a possibility that the Supreme Court would vote it down. So we did what happens if that gets voted down? Um, what does it mean for the organization? Um, there was a debate about whether or not Medicaid would be expanded in New Hampshire. What does that mean for the organization? And from that, we, we set a, a strategic goal, which was a vision, this is back in 2012, was to position Wentworth Douglas 
to be successful as an accountable care organization. So kind of taking the thrust of the ACA, which was on population health management, on improving the health of the population and applying that to Wentworth Douglas, we strongly felt at that time, which actually proved to be true, that even if the ACA was voted down, there was a clear direction that CMS, so Medicare and Medicare were were headed, as well as where we thought the private insurers were headed, which is to make healthcare organizations accountable for the um, quality of services that they provide and also are responsible for the cost. And so we decided to to position the organization to be successful, to maintain high patient satisfaction, um, maintain and improve quality of care, and then also beginning to wrestle with the question of cost. And so that vision then held for with a little bit of tweaking through the five years of the plan. And, and then as part of that, um, of that visioning, then we had a series of, I guess, a six, six strategies that came out of that, which were broad aspirational strategies. And then we had goals and objectives that we then had under those. And we would assign accountability to an executive leader at the goal level. And they would be responsible then for executing on all the objectives. Um, we tried to move the organization over the five years to have more outcome metric as opposed to process steps in the plan. And Can you explain um, how that's different? So um, the process is, is more about a, um, an interim step. So, for example, let's say... We wanted to develop a strategic plan in for cardiovascular services. So a process step would be you're going to pull together a team and you're going to create a plan and it'll be approved by the by the board of the directors. Where an outcome metric is uh, what we tried to evolve to, where it was yeah you're going to do the plan, you're going to get it approved, but what you want to do is drive volume. And so at the end of of the next year, you want to increase your number of of inpatient discharges or number of cardiac cath procedures by some percentage or some number. And so we tried to move the plan in that direction. And um, by the fifth year, we actually had it driven where we had 116 metrics that we were actually tracking. And we reported on a quarterly basis, again, to the executive team, and then it went to the board planning committee. So just taking a step back for a second, for folks not familiar with Wentworth Douglas Hospital, tell us a little bit about the organization. So Wentworth Douglas Hospital is, um, it's, we're licensed for 178 beds. We operate about 120. Um, we are what I would consider to be a regional-based um, community hospital, but we're a community hospital at our heart. Um, I think we're known for the being a very patient-friendly, patient-focused organization. And it's a key strength that we want to nurture and grow because we think that that's a part of our market differentiation. So we sit in a very competitive marketplace on the seacoast of New Hampshire where it's uh, roughly about 350,000 people on the seacoast marketplace served by five hospitals. Uh, We want to make sure that Wentworth Douglas is one of the ones that uh, will remain in perpetuity for the long term. And so that's part of what my role is and how I keep my vision focused. It's all on growth and development. So just kind of reflecting a little bit, I want to talk a little more about your role here, but but kind of reflecting on your journey from BU through Yale and, and your travels to coming to here at Wentworth Douglas. Um, what what do you feel like your strengths and skills were that you developed over that period, you know, a period leading up to here that that you brought to the table? I think there were several. I think one of them is I was able to 
think about the healthcare marketplace strategically. So broadly, strategically, able to synthesize a lot of information and able to communicate effectively to various audiences. So I think those are a couple strengths that I have. In addition to that, I think I've also got through my work primarily with um, with uh, PwC was uh, quantitative analysis in terms of trying to um, take information, analyze it, and um, and then apply it to management decisions. So I think that's been sort of um, key to my strengths as an organization. It's interesting when you when I work with directors uh, throughout this organization or others that a lot of the directors are so focused operationally that they don't see the broader perspective in terms of what's happening with healthcare, how they fit into the organization, and and what the direction of the organization is. So I found in my role here at Wentworth Douglas that I largely serve as a communicator. So so it's working with the board, uh, educating the board, educating our executive team, facilitating discussions with the executive team, and then also communicating to the entire management team and to employees. So as a prime example, um, I or one of my colleagues in strap planning are at every uh, new employee orientation uh, trying to acquaint them with the overall strategic direction of the organization wow. and how they fit in. Uh, so we have a, and it's part of our, um, when we update the strap plan on an annual basis, we have a very structured communication plan which follows about how we cascade that down, starting with the board, the executive team, and then to all the management down to the employees. Wentworth Douglas recently went through a process of affiliating with Massachusetts, Massachusetts General Hospital and has become and as a result, it's kind of becoming part of the larger partners organization that you have yep. done some work with previously. Um, what this is obviously in your in your uh, uh, area of responsibility because it's clearly a strategic right. decision. So, what made uh, what made Wentworth Douglas decide that affiliating with a larger organization at this time was advantageous and or or just necessary? That's a good question. This is something that I started on um, five years ago when we developed okay. the first strategic plan. So, so you knew right from when you got this was likely the future. Yeah, I, I, well, I had the perspective that I knew it would happen eventually. I didn't realize at the time coming in that it was going to be as quick as it was. So we we started by looking at, as we did this strategic assessment for the organization and setting the strategies, one of the strategies that we had was that we knew that if we we're going to be effective in terms of the changes that were coming in the healthcare environment, both the pressures on cost which were increasing, but also the pressures on accountability and transparency for quality of care, patient satisfaction, that we were going to be, and then also coupled with that too, I would say also the additional skill sets that we would need to have on board to help us manage population health effectively was something that we haven't done before and not something that healthcare has done before. So that we would need to eventually become part of something larger to get the size and scale we would need to be successful. And it was a bit of a hurdle, I think, for the organization because Wentworth Douglas Hospital has been and is very successful. And um, in fact, in 2016, we had the highest operating margin of any hospital in the state of New Hampshire. And so we spent actually, I would say, a good four solid years educating the board and educating medical leaders and uh, management staff here about what were the changes that were coming in healthcare, 
how were healthcare organizations across the country responding to that? What might be the opportunities for um, for Wentworth Douglas? And the way I could have characterized it now in retrospect is the first question we had to get over was, given the changes that were coming down in healthcare, could Wentworth Douglas remain a standalone community hospital um, in the long run? In other words, could we continue with our mission, which is to improve the health of the population of our community? And so it's all about the long-term viability of the organization to fulfill its mission. And, and so we, so we educated the board. I did a lot of work myself in terms of educating the board. We brought in several outside consultants to uh, get their perspective on what was happening in healthcare and what was happening in New Hampshire. The messages were all the same. And it took a while to educate the board, which is largely a lay board. We found, though, that a lot to Greg's credit and the board is that they, the organization invested in their education. So we, we educated them at every board meeting. In fact, we restructured the board meeting five years ago to have the first hour of the meeting focused on strategy discussions and, um, and education. And we used the existing uh, planning committee, which is a monthly meeting, uh, hour and a half, for strategic discussions about these issues to educate. We also, on a regular basis, send our board out to outside um, educational programs to uh, let them hear directly from experts in the field and to interact with others in the field. And so our board, I think that investment paid off and then our board is fairly well informed about what's happening across the industry. So we, we went through that and then it kind of got them to agree that healthcare was changing rapidly. And if we were going to be successful, we do need to be part of something larger. And then the question came up of then, all right, well, who do we affiliate with and when do we make the decision? And so going back to 2012, we had sort of a parallel process where uh, I and my staff um, pulled together what we called a, a strategic affiliation analysis, where we looked at every combination under the sun for all the players and every single combination. And then we worked through all of them. We did profiles of all the organizations on the seacoast. We did profiles of all of the major um, academic medical centers throughout New England and said, you know, where, where would be the sweet spot? What would work? What would be the criteria we would evaluate? What were our objectives? What was the path that we should follow? Uh, we also really also depended upon the insights of our board. We had a lot of board members that were focused on the community as they should be. There were other board members that were there that brought financial strengths, that brought business and industry strengths, um, including um, several bankers who had been through consolidations, a Fortune 500 CEO that was on the board that talked about sort of mergers and acquisitions. And so we brought their perspectives and their talents to the discussion. And we were open to their ideas, their perspectives, and we tried our best to inform and educate and to guide them along. And um, it was interesting. When it came down to it, we were looking at two options after going through all the iterations. One of them was, could we form a New Hampshire-based healthcare system? And the other option was, could we join um, Mass General Partners? And we already had a, um, I was like an eight-year, I think at that point, clinical affiliation with Mass General where we actually had seen some benefits where we had um, clinical subspecialists from MGH coming up to Wentworth and providing services, case in point being Dr. John Shorgay, who is the chief of um, GYN oncologic surgery, so a highly specialized uh, service 
And he was actually spending um, two to three days a week here treating women who before had to travel to Boston uh, or to Portland or to Dartmouth or other areas to get the surgery. Now we're doing it here. And over the five years that he was here, he treated over a thousand women that actually had surgery here. And then for those very complex surgeries where we weren't equipped to handle it, he would then do their pre-surgical work here, bring them down to Mass General, he would perform the surgery, and then they would come back and recuperate back in the, in the community and he would follow their care. So that has been one example of, of the benefits of being part of Mass General. So when it came down to it, we although we like the idea of a New Hampshire-based healthcare system, we felt that the imperatives of the changing healthcare environment that the time it would take for us to build a New Hampshire healthcare system, we felt we would still need to be part of a academic medical center. And really drawing on advice from our board, they said, let's focus on the end game. Where do we want to be down the road? And we made the decision that Mass General is the only and best partner for us in the long run. Again, to um, our mantra through the through the affiliation was strengthen, enhance, and grow. It was all about growth and strengthening what we did, and we felt that MGH had already demonstrated the value to our community and to the board for that. And so that was where we wanted to end up. And then if we end up creating a New Hampshire-based system after that, then that's great, but this is where we want to be. We also felt, too, that Coming in now, we add a full range of options in front of us that we could affiliate with anyone because there was not consolidation in the marketplace. And we had looked at other examples in other markets where hospitals perhaps that were strong community hospitals at the time decided that they didn't need to become part of a larger system. But because they waited, their options were limited down the road. So we looked at Winchester Hospital in Massachusetts as a prime example. Very strong, well-respected community hospital, doing well financially. They remained independent for a long time while Partners Healthcare System was formed, while Beth Israel was and Deaconess was forming, while Caritas was forming, while Leahy was forming. And when it came time for them, because realizing that they needed to be part of something larger, they were actually precluded from even talking to MGH. Now, I don't know whether that was in their interest, but they went with Leahy because that was really their only strategic option at that point. And so we said that we wanted to have the full range of options and make our best choice now. Mm -hmm. So we sort of went down that road. We also felt, too, that bringing a strong community hospital with a very strong and solid medical staff, a strong quality score, a strong patient satisfaction, and a very healthy bottom line would put us in a better situation for negotiation. Um, and so through that, through that positioning allowed us to negotiate a favorable affiliation agreement with Mass General. So we're very pleased with that. Yeah. I've heard that kind of line of reasoning from a couple of other senior leaders in large community hospitals, the idea of, of um, wanting to negotiate from a position of strength right. rather than a rather weakness, than desperation, yeah, a weakness. You mentioned the New Hampshire option. What Can you share a little bit about what that would have looked like? Yeah, we had um, the hospital had uh, was one of the founding members of Granite Healthcare Network. So Granite was an organization that included uh, Wentworth Douglas, Concord Hospital, initially Elliott Hospital, and then through the years, Elliott migrated out and Catholic came in, um, Southern New Hampshire Health System, and uh, Lakes Region. And that organization was a shared services organization, so it was co-owned by the five hospitals. 
And we started by by consolidating our purchasing power to enhance our ability to negotiate prices with vendors to get better pricing. We did a reference laboratory to save money in that regard. Uh, they did an offshore um, malpractice insurance carrier to save money in terms of, of going out to the commercial market for malpractice. And so it had a lot of promise. And the question was whether or not that organization or some subset of that organization might be able to form a healthcare system. And so that was the New Hampshire option that we began to explore and look at. Okay. Um, but it was a bit, bit trying because each of the organizations had their own perspective in terms of what they saw as their future. And so we couldn't coalesce around what would be a, a viable option for us. And these that sounds like kind of a merger of equals. I mean, you're, there are differences clearly right. in size and, and but you're all community hospitals. You're all that's right. Similar delivery capabilities. Similar, product, not not yes. identical. Yes. Yep. So it would have been kind of a horizontal merger rather than kind of this vertical uh, merger. So you wouldn't necessarily have picked up additional capability. You would have maybe uh, managed volume um, and some other maybe yeah. sharing sharing resources. Yeah, that's exactly the point. Um, when it came down to it, we said if if our strategic drive is strengthen, enhance, and grow, we found that there was very little that we could. It would it would take time to develop the capabilities to realize that benefit, starting from scratch as being a merger of equals. So, for example, John Shorge, the GYN oncologist I spoke about earlier, could we with that scale? Could we hire that physician and? Could we then share them on the hospitals and afford to keep him as a full-time doctor? I mean, we talked about that, although the geographic distance was a challenge. But we felt really that if, if we wanted the size and scale, we wanted to have the connection to the AMC, and we wanted to strengthen, enhance, and grow, that again, all options arrows seemed to point to Mass General. So it was a very, I mean, it sounds very simple now. It was a very, iterative and um, uh, process a lot of discussion over the time, but um, ultimately it, it led to sort of um, the most logical conclusion. This, this model that you had with Mass General prior to the, to the affiliation with uh, the clinical affiliation where they were sending a physician, yeah. a high, highly skilled physician up uh, to do work, and then sometimes he or she would do the work at your facility, sometimes he would do the, the kind of main procedure at back at Mass General. That's that's a model that they're using, Mass General is using in several places. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, so what's the attraction? So I see the attraction for, for the community hospital. I think you've made that clear. Like person does pre-op, post-op stuff here. Um, you retain some of the... Um, you retain some of the care here. Some of the care is able to stay in the community. What's the benefit to Mass General of engaging in those uh, relationships? Um, uh, there are a couple. I think one of them is that um, Mass General is a world-renowned center, and they actually start each day with between 50 and 100 patients in their ED that are waiting for beds. And... They um, are committed to their teaching mission, but they want to have the right kind of, of patient volume there. Uh, Mass General, although it's a tertiary hospital, also serves as a primary community hospital to the residents of, um, of that area of Boston. So the attraction for them is to allow, ultimately, for 
care to be treated in the community and then to funnel the very um, high-end tertiary and quaternary services to Mass General where it's the most appropriate location for those services. What we're trying to get up to is to work with them on repatriation, so taking those patients that um, are transferred down to Mass General, but then bringing them back to the community at an earlier stage than, than they would do now, okay. um, so more complex cases and treat them in the community. So it's also a way for them to, um, to uh, serve as a feeder, certainly for the organization, but to reach out and to actually hire additional manpower, so to, to hire more of the John Shoregaze types with skills that they can also have at Mass General, but also through their network and a larger scale, have that as part of their cadre of, of skilled clinicians and um, part of their armamentarium. So it's a way for them to grow their providers and enhance their, their mission. What's been interesting, though, is that Mass General also sees it that's obviously the size and scale option. So although they Although we reach out to them to start the clinical affiliation, they look at it as keeping sort of their options open for the future. And when we looked at the affiliation with them, that was not something that they drove. It was something that we drove. We approached them about it. So it keeps their sort of their connection to the community for appropriate referrals and to strengthen um, services locally in the community. So it, it's a natural fit. Yeah. A related question, I'm, I'm involved in teaching a course over at UNH right now on telehealth. I'm curious to your thoughts on telehealth, how that's in, in emerging, evolving, uh, and kind of how that fits into this. I see that as kind of a, a, a related uh, opportunity for you know, a facility like Mass General to take advantage of their, of their highly trained physicians without actually physically sending them out to the field. Are you seeing that evolving? Is that something that you see having a significant impact on the future? Yeah, we look at it actually more broadly, Mark. Um, we, in thinking about about telehealth, we put it in the context of increasing access. We spent a lot of time over the past several years looking at an ambulatory care strategy, which is really focused around access, care coordination, and growth. And so uh, out of that strategy, we have um, two urgent care centers and two prompt care centers. So it's offering choice in the marketplace. So in addition to the ER for complex services, there's urgent care facilities, which provide a step-down level for that and a decrease in price. But we also have prompt care, which is more the walk-in ambulatory care trade that we provide. It's to provide choice in the marketplace at different price points. Part of that approach also is how do we increase access? How do we better coordinate care, especially in the area of population health management? And how do we grow our covered lives to remain as a necessary and uh, vital part of the healthcare marketplace on the seacoast of New Hampshire. And so as part of that strategy, we see telehealth as being a way to reach out to consumers to provide them with choice in how they access care. So we actually started a, a pilot in telehealth at our facility, a prompt care facility in Pease that we opened uh, about a year and a half ago. 
and we just started the pilot and we're finding that there is still at least in this marketplace a little bit of resistance to using the telehealth um, some resistance from our providers but mostly from how it's perceived by the customers we thought there would be a real um, clamoring for that type of interaction but there still seems at least on the seacoast here to be uh, an interest that if someone is ill they want a face-to-face encounter with their uh, primary care provider but we're still committed because we think that that's where healthcare is going and we've got to be able to have that kind of vehicle to provide needed healthcare services. So a lot of interesting things happening strategically in healthcare. Um, I I was uh, doing some research for this interview and I came across an article where you were quoted uh, talking about the merger of two of our uh, community health centers. And uh, you commented that in my 30 years in healthcare, I believe this to be one of the most challenging periods we've ever seen. So kind of in conclusion, maybe give us some highlights. What, What is it that is making now such a complex um, and uh, challenging period? I think it's a, it's a couple things. I think one of them is the uncertainty about, about federal payment and for healthcare on a number of different fronts. I think one is the, it's a change by the federal government to no longer fund Medicare and Medicaid to the levels that they had in the past. They've been unable to to really bend the cost curve, and they're trying to control the expense for the country. And so a lot of uncertainty about um, what type of support will be out there, and not only for payment to providers, but they're also cutting back in terms of their support of um, teaching. Um, so medical teachings are residents um, and, uh, and fellows and nurses, just that whole focus on medical education, which has helped make the healthcare system in the U.S. one of the best in the world. Um, and also their cutback on um, research funding um, and their commitment to that, which has been a stalwart of, um, of the U.S. for years. Coupled with that is, is, the, is the recognition that healthcare is expensive. And we as leaders, as providers in the organization, need to figure out a way to bend that cost curve. And so I think the challenges that we're facing are, are growing. Uh, as reimbursement gets cut, down, cut back, as health insurers look to shift financial risk onto providers, something that we haven't had to deal with, uh, rightly or wrongly, but that's a real change for us. And so it's what emerges out of that equation will be a whole new healthcare system. I think additional levers that are providing pressure are the growth of consumerism that People are changing the way that they that they approach healthcare in terms of purchasing it. The rise of high deductible health plans, for example, is putting more out of pocket uh, costs onto the consumer, and so we really think that healthcare is moving away from an entitlement to more of a commodity where consumers are actually going to beginning to look at how they perceive value and then uh, equating that value to price point and making decisions. Because of the turmoil going on then within the industry itself and with changing consumer habits, it's also a very disruptive time where new entities, new providers are coming into the marketplace with new ideas and disrupting it. So a challenge of being in a community hospital is sometimes we need to think outside the box. We're wedded to the idea of having a hospital as the primary locus of care, covering the overhead to provide 24-7 ER care, 
and um, and other services that don't pay for themselves and cover the cost of the infrastructure, uh, while at the same time trying to move care out into the marketplace and um, at a price point that is affordable to the market is a real challenge. And I think we as leaders need to focus on how we're going to meet that challenge and to successfully provide needed healthcare services to our community to go bring it back to our mission of improving the health of our community. So. It's a very challenging time, the most I've ever seen in healthcare in my 30 years, and I've been through a lot of change. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been very interesting. Thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.